Welcome back to Where Others Won't and volume six of my Tough Stuff series. If you've been following me for any length of time, you might have picked up on my obsession with teams. For as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by how and why groups of people do things. It's probably what attracts me most about coaching. That's where my guest on this episode comes in. Simon Strachan is the co-founder and GM of sport at Gainline Analytics, a company that measures team cohesion by focusing on inputs rather than outputs. Their research across a number of sports has turned up fascinating insights that are more meaningful to a coach than most others, which turn out to be reimagined statistics that we already had. Volume 6 of the Tough Stuff series is with Simon Strachan. Simon Strachan, long overdue for a chat. How are you, mate? Yeah, very good, Cody. Very good indeed. In the spirit of Moneyball, we're going to talk uh, cohesion and, and coaching and analytics. And in the spirit of Moneyball, I'm going to throw a fastball straight down the middle. Why, according to your research, was a country like Iceland able to beat a country like England at Euro 2016? Let's just go straight to the, the guts of it. Uh, excellent question. Um, so the essence of our work, what we do is, is look at the understanding between players. And so where traditional analytics looks at outputs, um, player skill, kick, catch, pass, all those sort of things, we look at the inputs such as the player understanding. So when you have two teams like Iceland and England, when you just look at it from a skill standpoint, uh, you'd go, well, obviously England should should win all the time because you know they play in a league that's worth squillions of pounds. Um, Iceland, um, I think at the time, only had two players that might have been in the in, in, in sort of tier one football in Europe. Um, and you say to yourself, well, pound for pound, England should win uh, that game. But the other element uh, uh, to that game is what we call cohesion or the level of understanding. That's what we measure as a, as a business. Um, the thing about English football is that it's some, so for some reason designed not to create that level of understanding um, in teams, uh, especially the national team, because they have so many layers underneath. So you have layer upon layer upon layer. And when you have players that finally make the national team, they don't necessarily have played together over that course of time. So they come from you know, the, potentially the, the, the 98 professional clubs in, in England, where, of course, they might be coming from virtually the 20 Premier League clubs, and may, maybe there might even be a couple of guys out of the championship there. Um, and then they would have played potentially uh, junior grades for England, and they may not have played in the same team in that period of time up until playing for the senior side in England. So some of the guys, when they get selected for England, they might be shaking their hands for the first time they enter the change room. Iceland, on the other hand, very, very small player base, very, very small population, 330,000 or whatever it is. You know, the stats are very well known out of that. The assistant coach was a dentist. All these, all these other factors are revolving around Iceland, but they had a very, very small system. So they had only had a, a small number of uh, junior age groups, and their junior age groups did not perform very well. But if you had a twelve-year-old who was half decent, he'd be playing with fifteen and sixteen-year-olds for a long period of time. 
So as they came through the system, by the time they got to the national team, they'd actually been playing for a long time um, together. So they had high levels of understanding. So when they played off in that game in 2016, where the expectation was in England, just because of the perceived high level of skill, what happened was these, the Iceland had, a, had a, an advantage over England in the fact they had a higher cohesion. So potentially you play that game 10 times and maybe Iceland win twice in that game. But what Iceland had was the capacity to perform above expectation because of the high levels of cohesion or those high levels of understanding. And England, which is a trade over time, they perform below expectation because they don't necessarily create high levels of cohesion in the national team. Unlike, say, uh, Germany that had a fantastic system that does Belgium, uh, Greece 2003 um, or uh, 2004 Euro as well, just the fact that the majority of their players came out of three Greek clubs. So it's those moments that created the situation where um, Iceland um, won that game 2-1 and, and it's gone down in folklore. People have written books. It was um, in your book. Other people have written books about it. Um, but it comes down to what we look at, the level of understanding between the players in that way. So so all the talk about Iceland and their coaching system and their um, indoor indoor fields are all very important and enables people to play, but, but not necessarily the reason for that game outcome because they haven't necessarily gone on Iceland over that time. They, I think they were 0-8 during the um, Nations League, um, current cha- uh, championships going on at the moment. So... So that performance of 2016 hasn't necessarily carried on because a lot of those players who played together in 2016 aren't, aren't playing together now, so they've lost some of that cohesion. So that's that, that's the way we looked at that particular game and that's sort of, in essence, the way that we look at sport in that context of performance and the use of cohesion and understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to, uh, like I said, I'll start with a fastball and we're going to backtrack from there and, and there's so much for us to unpack here. And, you know, you and I and, and Ben were talking for the last couple of years really around your work and it's always fascinated me and uh, a story that I've told a couple of times on, on other people's podcasts recently has been, you know, I was born in Canberra, so I'm a Canberra Raiders boy. Um, you know, all I remember about my childhood in Canberra was essentially opening up a, a book I would write both teams down, you know, I don't know if you remember, but on the TV, the numbers used to be right down the middle and then both teams would have, they'd come out from the side. So you'd have like Illawarra Steelers over here and you'd have the Canberra Raiders over here. And I would write that out in my book, both sides, and then I'd go out into the front garden and play for both teams up and down the the garden. And uh, the reason I'm, I'm telling you that is that teams and teamwork have literally fascinated me since I was a six or seven-year-old boy and, and what made the Raiders work and, and you know, and what made Canterbury work. And then I moved to Melbourne and it's become, you know, why, why were Hawthorne successful? Why were all these different teams successful? You can see it in, in my book. And specifically what I, I really like and appreciate about uh, what you guys do at Gainline is that it comes from that that inputs perspective because the thing that's always irked me about traditional analytics is that it's outcome-based. And as a coach myself, I couldn't care about the outcome. I'm a, I'm a Bill Walshian score takes care of itself kind of coach in that I, I want to drive those inputs to get the output in the end, but I know that the inputs are more important. Um, and there are very few that I can find that are actually taking that approach. Um, 
and I really like that this idea of looking at the network of connected relationships as opposed to the individual skill. Um, because again, we, we've seen so many examples of super teams and, and things like that have just fallen apart. You know, in North America, the, the one that a lot of people remember is that, you know, the Philadelphia Eagles and it was said at the, the press conference, you know, I think it was Vince Young, oh, I've got a super team. And they went like four and 12 and, and capitulated because they were looking at, at talent. They had great talent, but none of them could play together. Um, but let, let us backtrack. Tell us about gain line and, and TWI and specifically around governance and, and what you're looking at in terms of kind of the three tiers of, of governance um, because they all, they all kind of factor in together. Yeah. So when we look at team performance in, in a way, and, and you've touched on this and I've touched on this before, is that generally the, the 90% of sports analytics or 95, 99% of sports analytics looks at those outputs, looks at the event data and then tries to understand potentially the reasons why from, from those outputs. But the, the event data is almost like another version of a score um, in a way. So what, what, we have, what we do from our um, analytics perspective is actually try and measure what the inputs to that performance are. And so, and the, the way we do it is through this um, measuring the level of understanding in the team. So it's an objective understanding. So we use the word cohesion. So it's not like social cohesion, whether people like each other or not. It's more about a measurement, a, a proxy for the, for the level of understanding they have. And, and this comes across um, who the people are, what positions they play, what program they're playing within. And there's all these different factors and it's different for different sports. Um, um, and th these factors are driven through um, uh, through the competition, what type of sport it is. Cohesion in, so the AFL is much different from what it is in the NRL, which is much different from what it is in Premier League, which is different for the NFL, just the nature of the trade policies in play. So that these are all factors that go into it. But, but ultimately, a, a team has a capacity to perform. What, what we say is skill times cohesion equals capacity. You have a certain set of skill, a certain set of cohesion, they come together to create an output. So you can have a massive amount of skill and low cohesion, which uh, which you could say was Chelsea in the mid two thousands when when all the Abramovich money came into Chelsea, massive mm -hmm. skill, low cohesion, still had a high output. But then you had Manchester United under Ferguson, high skill, high cohesion, high output. They won everything. But in saying that, the players eventually, who were those high skill players, were a bunch of um, teenagers, the class of ninety two, that a lot of other teams chose not to sign because they didn't think they were good enough came into this high cohesion environment and turned out to be these superstars that are household name um, now. So um, so ultimately, they have what we call governance decisions. So what happens on the field, what happens in the team is a function of the decisions that have been made last year, the previous season, five, ten seasons before, about how the team is produced and the level of understanding in that team. So once you understand that and you, and you know that, that actually gives you a level of context to performance. If you if the markers, for example, are really really low, um, there's only a certain output that can be achieved, and then everyone can be judged upon that, which is not normally the case. And because of the way we look at things, is not necessarily understood. A lot of decisions around team performance is not necessarily correct. In our view, is not necessarily correct because the context of the performance is not is not understood. So. So when you have a sporting organisation that has the coach and the rest, the on-field people, and then you have the governance, the board and the owner, 
majority of these sporting uh, teams have a gap between the governance and the on-field. And the only time the governance actually ever step in is when the on-field has gone pear-shaped. <laughs> generally, they, the reason they, they step in is because it's not going well, so we've got to make a change. Let's fire the coach, the manager, um, those sort of things, the, the, the director of sport or something like that. Because there's no there's no way to, for the governance to understand what the actual level of capacity that this team can to can perform to. So from from a business side, we're trying to create that bridge, which we're filling that gap between the governance and the on field uh, to allow people to understand what the context of performance is. Because ultimately, you could be the greatest coach in the world, but if the team doesn't necessarily have that level of understanding, you can't achieve high results. Or conversely. You can be a very, very high cohesion team. The coach doesn't necessarily have to be that good for them to still be able to achieve good results. However, the coach will be made to look really good because of the results of, of the environment that it's created um, in that way. So, so a lot of the best coaches in the world are not necessarily a function of their own ability, but a function of the, the, the environment that they're actually coaching in, which for some of them they may have had nothing to do with, but others, they may be integral into creating that environment as well and ha actually have an understanding of, of how that environment was created. And it allows them to coach to their capacity. Everything works um, under those circumstances. So, so it's really, if you understand the governance side, you can understand the inputs. And if you understand the inputs, it gives much more context to what the outputs are and you can actually make proper objective decisions around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, the 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 outcome that usually happens in the situation that you're describing is coaches fired and then players replaced and, and so begins the circle. Right. And, and, you know, again, bringing new players outside environment, uh, potentially less cohesion because they're all, you know, from five different clubs, five different players. And now you've got a Spanish manager trying to learn English, uh, you know, speaking through a translator and then, that coach gets fired, you know, six months later and, and the cycle starts again. Yeah. Right. And you can, and, and it's kind of stumbled uh, completely out of control in, in a lot of sports uh, because there's this idea that you just replace the talent and then hope that the new coach can get a bridle on that talent within six months. Yeah. And I think, and, and that's exactly, absolutely the case. Like, um, so Alec Ferguson probably could not hold a job, um, these days, he, he, the time he was given in his in, when he first got the job at Manchester United, if that was now, he probably wouldn't survive. Which which says that you know legends of the game potentially will, would never become legends because of the nature of the environment at the moment. And part of that, I think, is just because the nature of of in a way the use of sort of modern analytics. There's so much emphasis on the skill side that the actual environment side part of it is lost in a way. And you're absolutely right about that cycle. Team's losing, sack the manager, the new manager comes in. Well, obviously the players aren't good enough. Let's get new players. Doesn't necessarily perform. More often than not, it doesn't perform. And the cycle begins. So team's not performing, let's sack the manager, which is a, which is European football, which is English football. Like um, in 2014-15 in the championship, the average tenure of a manager was 0.86 of a year. It's just it was just horrendous how much change there is. And we, from our perspective, majority of those sackings were not warranted because it wasn't a reflection of the manager. It was a reflection of the environment um, that the manager was trying to work in. The fact it was um, low cohesion, it was just 
um, emphasising on the use of skill. And, um, you know, half the teams, the players were probably introducing themselves to each other at training all the time. So it just makes it very difficult for a team to actually function properly and for those new players to come in and actually play to expectation. You've, been, you've got a player playing at a different club. They've got a certain amount of um, outputs. They come to a new environment. That player will never have those same outputs from the get-go. And that's one of the critical things that's not necessarily understood, or it's understood, but it's it's not necessarily taken into account um, with with um, with player performance around that. There needs to be a period of adaption, but in modern sport, that just doesn't seem to be allowed anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, head coaches are the most underappreciated and overappreciated people in sport and hence why I'm writing the book that I'm writing and and you've actually touched on something that I've written about in that if you look at just three really uh, you know large-scale examples of Ferguson, Belichick and Clarkson now even before you even get into the outcomes of what happened with them in in you know uh, in Manchester in, in New England and Hawthorne for all three of them, they were lucky to be in those jobs in the first place. So if you actually look into Ferguson's background before he got to United, so when he was at Aberdeen, so I think he was offered the Liverpool job, the Wolverhampton job, the Arsenal job, uh, he coached Scotland. You know, he takes any other of those jobs, doesn't get the Manchester United job, and then also doesn't get that time that he had, to your point. Um, Belichick quit at his introductory press conference for the New York Jets, the arch rival of the, the New York the New England Patriots, and walked. Actually, got traded to the Patriots for a first round draft pick. Now that that doesn't happen, he gets cold feet and says, "No, I'm actually going to stay at the Jets. We don't have the Patriots, and we don't have Bill Belichick." Uh, Clarkson was the third choice of Hawthorne. Uh, Terry Wallace and and um, Rodney Ede were the first two choices former Hawthorne players you know if if, he, if either of those have itchy feet and want to come back and try to replicate the the 80s of Hawthorne and, and win flags like they did as players we probably don't have Alistair Clarkson and so I, again I, I think we need to be realistic about this stuff in that and I, I speak about this a lot now in the winners are great and listening to the winners but it's it's not the full picture we need to we need to also look at the losers because there's some great coaches that ultimately lose and get spat out of the system and are on television now that were fantastic coaches but to your point didn't have the right environment or the right time or something else in the environment went wrong and it's okay for it's okay for us to just say that two 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 points there one is that one thing we do in the um, in competitions that we measure is that we actually look at um, coach output against their markets to see if they how they perform did they over or underperform against their markets. And generally, most coaches match their markets. Rarely you get a massive amount of overperformance. Sometimes you get, more often you get underperformance with it. But what we found is, is the most lauded coaches in rugby league in the NRL in recent history are not the overperformers. They are coaching to their team's markets. There's actually some of the other coaches. In fact, there's a couple of coaches that have been sacked by clubs um, in the last few years that are actually probably the, the most overperforming coaches. And here's the thing. So they weren't, it's not as overperforming because they were making the finals with really bad teams. They're actually, the team should have been last and they were like in the bottom third. 
So they're actually right. still being able to take them above capacity, but the markers were so low they could never, say, make the finals, but they were still taking them higher than they, they should be. So so there are, like you said, there are coaches out there in poor teams that are actually probably um, as good, if not better, than the coaches in the really good teams. But in saying that, and this is a point I made early on, is the environment, because the environment is such a strong, critical driver to team output, the coach... Some coaches don't have a role in that environment and some coaches do. So the coaches that, that do can take that credit as well, as well as their on-field coaching. Um, coaches that don't necessarily have input in that environment, uh, um, sort of their influence is a lot less. Um, this, the second point I'll make, and we talk, you talked about those three coaches, the one thing about Ferguson is, and this is the evidence for me uh, or for us after he left, Manchester United and its slide would indicate that potentially wherever Ferguson went, he potentially could have created a really strong system. And the reason why I say that is once he left, there wasn't institutional memory in Manchester United to keep going what he created. And that seems to indicate it was with him and not necessarily the organisation. And so potentially he, wherever he went, he could have created the who could have created the environment. Of course, the advantage of Manchester United is they're a big club and they have resources to help him along in his philosophy because he did have very specific recruiting philosophies about the way he brought players in, specific type of players, specific ages, etc. Mm-hmm. And then once he left, it was just completely forgotten and um, the next choice in, David Moyes, changed everything, underperformance, got sacked, next coach in was trying to pick up the pieces, underperformance, got sacked, next coach in, lasted. I don't know how long Mourinho lasted. And now they're just a, another sort of top six, if that club, and destroyed all the all the um, critical governance sides, that, or not necessarily the governance side, but all the critical aspects that Ferguson created to create that high cohesion environment because it wasn't actually in the governance structure. It was just with him as an individual which is a good learning lesson, I think, around organisations and understanding where the IP needs to needs to be. If the, if the IP is in the person that's leaving, then that doesn't necessarily bode well for the future of the organisation. So I want to come back to that, but are you saying that hiring David Moyes just because he was another Scottish guy might not have been the right call? <laughs> Well, I, I think that, that I think that was the I think that was literally the reason was just like, hey, there's another Scottish guy down the road in Liverpool, so. Um, yeah. But let, let's go back. Let's go back to uh, what you were talking about there, because that is a, a really interesting point. So, who then is doing that uh, IP transfer well from a club perspective that you can see? So, um, one one for me is um, uh, so the Melbourne Storm is a really great example of a a team uh, here in, in the National Rugby League here in Australia that basically has a long-term vision for everything. So so if people are familiar with the Melbourne Storm, they had what was called the big three. They had basically Smith, Slater and Cronk, who were legends of the game, will be immortals. Um, and they were the backbone of their team for a long period of time. Now, two of those left. It was like, oh, my God, what's going to happen to the Storm? Can they find the players to bring them through? And they've just won the um, NRL Premiership uh, on the weekend with... Smith is still there. He'll, by the way, he's going. He'll be playing till he's forty-five. But they've just got these young guys filling the spots, and and 
it's part of the environment that they've created that they can bring in these guys and these guys can play to their capacity because, A, they trust their system. They know that they've got the systems in place and they can bring the guys in. But they're also always looking forward about who the next guy is going to be. And this goes down to the coach as well, where, where they as an organisation will be open within the organisation who the potential next coach of the Melbourne Storm will be. Where if you said that in other NRL coaches, it would be seen as backstabbing. It would be seen as as seen as uh, you're not supporting the head coach. Why are you doing that? Um, uh, sort of around um, not supporting this current status quo. Where all the Melbourne Storm are doing is thinking, well, how do we continue to be successful going forward? Because it's not about the individual; it's about the club. I mean, their mantra is um, just do your job, um, and and that's basically um, what people. Are, uh, are required to do and it's all about what everyone has to do within the club to create success and that success part of that success is the long-term success mm-hmm. um so that that's a club that's doing a chennai chennai super kings um in the um indian premier league in cricket was a, is another sort of long-term natured team that has that really sort of long-term philosophy around um stability and retaining players going forward they're not having a very good season this this year um but they've had a, a long, long-term success over a period of time. So, um, yeah, so they are two clubs. I mean, the Canterbury Crusaders, um, Exeter Chiefs in English rugby, a really good example of sort of that long-term nature mm-hmm. there. So um, there's quite a few. I mean, San Antonio under Greg Popovich, um, you know, 20 years or 21 years in the playoffs uh, without having a, you know, without having a significant draft pick over that period of time. Um, having that sort of a long-term view as well. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, the one that I think of, and only because I, I have a little bit more kind of intimate knowledge of them, is, is Southampton um, in, the, in the Premier League and, and a similar long-term view. Again, a, a, it kind of started as this German view or restarted as this German view and German governance of it. Um, and obviously the academy plays a huge role in that. Uh, but from a coaching perspective, what fascinates me about them is they have this, they have a list and they know the types of coaches that will coach Southampton because they know the demeanor of the, the, the coaches and, and the coaches almost pitch to the club about how they're going to fit into the club rather than the model that we tend to have is that, oh, geez, Jose Mourinho is going to come in here and he's going to revolutionise our, our, all of our tactics and all of our systems. And, and again, that IP transfer just goes with that coach from, from next to next, whereas Southampton seem to have the other way around. And again, this is, what, this is where I think the conversation needs to go is it's great to talk about all these winners. But what's, what's more interesting are the Southamptons of the world, the, the teams that are overperforming uh, what you would say, uh, let's call it staying in the Premier League when when they don't have international players and uh, you know they're they're bringing through academy players and, and they're slotting in and they're not spending huge amounts of money. Um, I think that's where it gets really interesting. Yeah, and a good example of that in the rugby space, and I mentioned it before, is the Exeter Chiefs that just mm-hmm. won the just won the um, English double Premiership yes. Cup, just won that championship, and they've just won Europe as well. And they're they're a team that doesn't have very many English representatives in their team, and they're a team that ten years ago were playing uh, in the in the in the division below, 
So there's players, there's players that just won the European Championship and won the English Premiership that were playing in the tier below um, 10 years ago, which says something about them as an organisation, about their long-term um, development and their long-term view um, towards it. So it was. So when they won the they won the English Premiership um, uh, maybe three seasons ago, two or three seasons ago, and it was this beautiful bit of poetry that the guy who kicked the last set of points for Exeter on on during that final was one of the guys that came up with the team from the Championship into the into the Premiership, which, which says a lot about them in the way they do things. They've got you know they take a lot of their players from their local area down in. in South of England, around Devon, that, mm-hmm. that particular area, uh, and they've got a link through um, the University of um, Exeter as well about bringing guys or, or taking guys from there, which is very similar to the Canterbury Crusaders. They've got a strong link to Lincoln University in Christchurch. That their guys, they they identify players, and then I don't know how necessarily they do it, but a lot of their guys for that they've identified then come through Lincoln, and then they just basically get fed into the the Canterbury and the Tasman system. So by the time they play for the Crusaders, they've literally been in there. In there, when they make their debut for the Crusaders, they've played with half, three quarters of the guys anyway. Um, and, and it's like just playing. It's like playing with your mate still, because you're playing Super Rugby. Um, and so there's sort of no gaps, uh, so to speak, when they, when they do play for the Crusaders, just because the system um, and they trust their system in that way. So that it's not, they're not out searching for talent because they know their system will create the talent for them. Mm-hmm. And so let's kind of hop over to the other side and talk about like how are there ways to fast track cohesion? So other than, other than these examples where there's player pathways, because a lot of, particularly yep. here in North America, there are no player pathways like there are in, in the UK and, and like Australia. So I guess the question is, how can we fast track it or enhance it if we don't necessarily have those pathways and we have to go to, you know, there might be drafts or, or whatever the player distribution model is. Yeah. Are there ways that we can accelerate that? Yeah. So there's obviously from a long-term, long-term sustainable success way, obviously that, that long-term player development is, is critical for that. But there are ways to create higher levels of cohesion in season. Um, we've got a term called back-ending. Um, when Leicester City won the um, uh, Premier League in 15-16, uh, that was a classic case of back-ending. It was a combination of everything went right for them. Their, their stability in their team actually started at the end of the season before mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, went through for that 15-16 uh, f- um, season. And then um, other teams were slightly off as well. Um, so it basically was a beautiful little window for them. And that's the nature of uh, that's the nature of the Premier League. So the Premier League cohesion has dropped so much um, since it started in back in ninety two, ninety three, just just because of the liquidity of of player trades um, that it gives an opportunity to someone to rise up really quick. But so they had that absolute bull terror of a season. Um, high, really high in-season sort of co- cohesion that season. Uh, their defensive, their defensive ability um, over the course of the season got much, much better as their cohesion um, uh, improved. But then that's great for that season. 
But then the following season, of course, they won the Premier League. We go to the, go to the Champions League. They actually made it to the finals of the Champions League, which is pretty impressive, but they nearly got relegated. They're actually in the relegation yeah. zone or they were at the bottom of the table for a period of time and said, oh, my God, could they be relegated? Because they didn't have the, the sort of the strength across, across the squad. They didn't necessarily have the cohesion across the squad um, to allow them to compete across competitions. So that, yes, you, you have this really good season, you could do these things in the short term, but potentially it almost nearly bit them in the ass in the long term because of that. So, but then, I mean, that's an example. So other ways you do it. So when, um, you know, the Melbourne, we've talked about the Melbourne Storm, they just won the NRL Premiership. They actually won the Premiership in their second year in the in the NRL in you say it's a brand new team, how did that work? But it was actually on the back of a lot of the guys actually had played together in previous teams. So there was a lot of previously shared experience when they came together in that way. It was similar to um, 2003 and 2005 when Penrith and the Tigers won their, won their um, last premierships. Um, but what you find with those situations, they quickly drop off. They win, but then they don't, they can't back it up. They're not like the Roosters. They're not like the Melbourne Storm. Basically, the, the Sydney Roosters and the Melbourne Storm have won the last half a dozen premierships over that period of time. When you do get one of these teams that can enhance it in a season, whether it's through that everything's worked for them perfectly or that they've brought in this external shared experience, it just doesn't last in that way. So you can have your little uh, moment, in the, moment in the sun, but then it drops off afterwards. So, so in saying that, there, there are ways to be successful um, but it's not necessarily long term. But but then um, just from a purely from a from a logistical standpoint, a training and and um, 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 from a coaching perspective, there are things you can do. Um, making sure that um, you know you're training the, the, the players together in certain positions, um, making sure they're in you know open open activities where they put on a lot of. Um, uh, decision-making pressure and stress because ultimately it comes back down to decision-making when you put under stress you've got to make the right decision and the person next to you needs to be confident that the the, the, the person inside them is going to make the right decision because when they're not confident that's when that's when say the defensive line um, starts to break and that's when the decisions aren't necessarily um, made the way they should be so there's things you can do in training to try and enhance that but ultimately I mean what we found is it, it comes down to game time Mm-hmm. Um, in that way to really enhance and develop that high level of understanding. Yeah, that's interesting. And I want to come back to that because I, yeah, you go. In saying that, sorry, in saying that, so in Australia, we just, obviously, we've just gone through a fairly heavy lockdown and our sports, a lot of our sports competitions have been played in bubbles and the teams, and this is anecdotal at the moment, we haven't studied it, but the teams who've won the NRL, uh, the rugby league, the AFL, and the net, in fact, the netball um, were teams that are more, were more heavily involved in bubbles, which means they've spent much more time together in a really closed environment. They've actually had a lot of time to work in detail, similar to um, the New Zealand Warriors in the rugby league. They were in the bubble and they actually improved their defence over the course of the season. And we do know from a previous NRL season at the end of the Rugby League World Cup in 2017, Player teams getting their players back late from the Rugby League World Cup um, didn't perform very well at the beginning of the season, but slowly caught up, which, which says a lot about pre-season. 
there was a d- distinct difference between teams that had full CC, full pre-seasons compared to the teams that got their players back late. So there are aspects of about their training time and their pre-season and, and that go into performance. So, so, so from from that side of it, there are there's definitely um, things you can do to mitigate low cohesion by making sure that players are together for as much as possible. But that doesn't. For us, it's all about training and understanding and making decisions under pressure. It's not going on a paint, paint necessarily going on a paintballing trip or going, you know, going on a going to the pub and sinking some beers to try and get to know each other. Because sinking beers with blokes is all very well, but that doesn't help you in the defensive line, or it doesn't help understand what someone's going to do under pressure when they've got the ball in their hand. So that's the way we look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you from first-hand experience, like you, you can tell, even in training, you can tell who you are cohesive with immediately in terms of your level of thinking. Like someone could walk in off the street to your footy team. And, and I experienced this, the best teams that I was on, the, we, you could look around the huddle when the coach is talking and, and know that everyone had a, a similar skill level. But like you could literally feel where they were going to be even in you know small-sided games and things like that and so yeah um like elite athletes already know this you're just putting language around it and, and starting to measure it which i think is is fascinating yeah i, I want to come back because i i, I want to talk about a couple of examples that we talked about uh before we came to air but first i want to talk about what you just mentioned at the end there in terms of understanding what your position group or uh, your teammates on the field are doing. Um, I think this is where a lot of analysis falls apart from a coaching perspective in that there are legacy items that don't help anyone. For instance, I would look at, as an outsider, I would look at soccer and say, the back four isn't actually a back four. Um, the, the interactions between the players probably dictate that the right midfielder is probably more uh, applicable to the performance of the right back than the left back is to the performance of the right back. So the right midfielder and the right back are going to interact more both offensively and defensively more than the right and left back are. And so what we do, though, is we say, well, the back four was shit because they conceded goals. But that analysis is flawed for me, even as an outsider, to say, like, those interactions between those groups of players are almost wrong. And it's just literally because they're written on the same line on the team sheet. But they, they very rarely interact with each other. Um, now, at the same time, I, I get coaching and structure and, and you can make a back four defend better and you can do all these different things and um, there are systems that you can give some from a coaching perspective. But um, I think a lot of, and this is for every sport that, that I look at from a coaching perspective, a lot of the traditional methodologies of like analyzing what's going on are flawed at the basic level like that. Um, how, how do you see those, those position groups and kind of measuring those position groups on, on the field? Cause I know you guys can kind of break them down and look at, yeah, like who is it? Who is actually interacting the most, and how cohesive are those smaller groups within the team? Yeah, um, and and that's what we do do. So teams within teams to understand how the units within the team 
what's their level of cohesion and what's their against their KPIs. And you're exactly right about how they interact um, with each other. So what is what is the correct understanding between players? Can you just break off the back four to the midfielders and those sort of things? Which I don't have an answer for because we've got some general we've got general markers for football, but we we, we don't necessarily have that level of detail. And often it comes back down to um, the particular um, formation and game style as well to set up those. But awesome. but but absolutely. So so for example, um, breaking up into attack it, uh, into um, attack and defence. So going back to my two examples of the two thousand three two thousand five NRL Grand Finals. Both those teams that won actually had really poor, relatively poor defensive records. Normally, um, um, hashtag defense wins titles, which is a, which is <laughs> something we put out there. We put out there a lot um, um, because the defenses, are, especially in the rugby codes, which is a sort of a hundred and eighty degree invasive sport, where you basically got a defensive line. A co- a defense is. Cohesion manifests itself very, very strongly in defence. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so what was happening in those 2003, 2005, they had very high skill attack and could score lots of points but were poor defenders. Okay. And that was a signal That was a signal for the way the team was put together. And when you look at that signal and then say, and by the way, those teams then quickly dropped off, you could, it basically paints a picture of the environment that was there to allow them to win because they weren't necessarily good defensively. And so by actually looking at the units within units, you can actually get an understanding about how the team's performing. So a team could be winning all the time, um, but be defensively poor. And 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 um, there's a term we use called a flat track bully. So a team that can can actually you know put 40 points on another team because they, the other teams are playing not very good. But as soon as they put up against a strong team, they collapse themselves and they lose by 40. And they are those sort of signals within there. So looking at units within units, you can get an idea about how the team's made up and actually how they are actually performing. Win-loss is great, but win-loss doesn't tell, necessarily tell you the whole picture. Um, but understanding those units within units, um, uh, yeah, it does in a way. So um, so that's important. And again, it comes back to that context of performance and give an idea about um, what is working and what's not. Like the hardest job... The hardest job in in most codes is the defensive coach because um, that that's the one that's impacted most by our experience. The one that's impacted most by cohesion. So when you've got a low cohesion team, they're the ones that have seem to be working the hardest because they're trying to fix the problem, and the problem they may not necessarily understand what the problem is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I want to revisit what we we're talking about a little bit before because I, I think a, a really fascinating example of teamwork in general going on right now is Wolverhampton Wanderers and what they've done with Portuguese players and 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 recruiting specifically Portuguese players um, to their club and you know have gone from kind of a, a mid-table championship team obviously they've got money now but a mid-table championship team to uh, you know, top 10 kind of challenging those top six, but there seems to be something to even at a granular level, that ability to understand both the Portuguese coach. And then, you know, I think they've got 11 Portuguese players on their roster and essentially almost no English speakers. 
what what would you say about something like that from a, an ability to even though they might not come from necessarily the same talent pipeline but something as in terms of building understanding when you're looking at building understanding comes from language anyway putting together players that speak the same language like that uh, it could only be an advantage i think especially in football when it's it's such um uh, so many different languages in the sport it all adds up in that way and that would help in that way and likewise having you know so many portuguese players um, i remember reading a study uh, earlier in the year about different training techniques in different countries and um, Portugal, Spain sort of train different to the way the English train, which is different to the way the Germans train. And so yeah. there's probably an element of that. And so, because what we what we say in, in, in from cohesion, we talk about the three Ps, people, position and program, the relationship of people to people, the relationship to position, so what their role is, and the relationship to the program, which is potentially the way they play and the coach in the way. And the program could also be the S&C, the physio and, and the facilities and those sort of things. So if you've got a whole bunch of people that, put, that speak the same language and potentially have come up playing the same way, it can only be helpful for it uh, in that way. So the counter-argument to that is that's all very well, um, but when, when the manager becomes quite successful and is picked up by... You know, uh, Porto, um, and so the the Portuguese manager leaves, and now there are eleven Portuguese players on the books. What's the plan going forward? Like, w- what is what are they going to do as a club? There, do they then transfer away from that, or do they keep the whole Portuguese experiment going? So there is a there is a short term gain um, out of that, but whether or not that's a that's a long term strategy, um, I'm not hundred percent sure, um, but in saying that, short-term gains, it seems to be the, the emphasis um, <laughs> in, in, in the Premier League. So, Right. Yeah. Right. And so another example of that is, is, in a way, is Athletic Bilbao. So Athletic Bilbao is a, a club in the, in, um, the, the, that's got an emphasis of signing Basque players. So that's basically their raison d'etre. We, our squad is made up of Basque players. And so they have Basque players that come through their youth program but they also bring back players who are of a Basque background. So, and they've sort of been identified as a, as, as a, as a good example of a sort of a high culture environment. And they are successful over their uh, wage um, bracket, so to speak, in, 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 in Spanish football. But th- there's, still a, there's still an outlier in that from our perspective, from a cohesion standpoint, because you can be bringing back Basque, Basque, uh, Basque players, which is great, but those Basque players may never have played with anybody else in that environment. So it might as well be someone else. It might as well be an Englishman or a, a Dutchman coming back. So it's still from an out perspective, doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily as good as it could be um, mm-hmm. by potentially just bringing Basque players just through the youth program, which so then you look at a club like AZ, AZ Alkmaar in Holland that have this really, really strong emphasis on youth. And the way they, they frame it, is that they've got they're using a lot of technology to identify young players, and then they, you know, quality young players, and they've got a quality system, training, fitness, and the whole thing that brings them in. So they've got one of the highest ratios of, of, of players come through their youth program playing in their senior team. But the but the 
but the the thing for us is that when we look at that, it's like it's almost like this, you know, the Melbourne Storm or the Canterbury Crusaders, where they trust their system. They've chosen to trust their system because their philosophy is to bring through youth, and because they're bringing through youth, those people are playing, those kids coming into senior players are actually playing together for a long period of time, so they're naturally building cohesion in the environment. So where one looks at it is great systems identifying skill and upskilling these players, equaling, you know, first team player uh, first team output we're saying the nature of the way they've put their team together is actually creative cohesion which is also a function in that player output because they they came second or third in the in the dutch first division i can't pronounce it properly the end is for um, the name of it um and and um um and they i think uh they're in the europa league this year and um are going pretty well in that so um so 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 there's the different um, program you've got in place often drives the ultimate cohesion, but then is the is the program long term or short term, and you know, what's ultimate the end end goal? So, um, I mean, Wolves is a good experiment, uh, but but potentially short term because it's all revolving around the manager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, and and yeah, it remains to be seen how long they can keep it up, and and. Yeah, I think from a from a Dutch perspective as well, and, and I wrote about Alkmaar in general from a, a where others won perspective because they're one of the few that actually employ people from other sports in the boardroom. Um, you know, they've got some from baseball, some from the Dutch hockey team. Uh, Billy Bean, Billy Bean's a part owner. Like, I was going to say, I was lucky enough because so I visited there a couple of years ago. So their general manager played baseball for the Yankees. For the Yankees, like, how's that? Right. Yeah, I mean, this Dutch guy. Um, um, uh, Robert Einhorn, mm-hmm. Robert Einhorn, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it it and the really good thing about that is um, that there's obviously baseball is one of the it's an, analyzed up the wazoo um, from you know from a sports analytics perspective. So so that brings in an organisation that automatically from the top down has this view on how to use analytics in an environment. So they're trusting their system. Because they're not necessarily because because they they say this is what this is the route we're going to take and it's got alignment down the system because basically the head guy says this is what we're going to do and this is what we're going to do and I'm going to bring in people that are going to do it um, this way and and you know having the connection to Billy Bean and and so it's, it, it, they really push the analytics side but the offshoot of the analytics side is that they that they it drives youth and because of youth it drives those relationships so by the time they get to the first team so they're, they're the highest TWI um, team in, in, Dutch, um, in Dutch football. So, and TWI, which is a measure of teamwork index, which is a measure of the overall um, squad cohesion as opposed to game-by-game cohesion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm mindful of time here because, again, we could go on for hours about this. But what is, a, what is like a high TWI coach look like what so in in an ideal world for you as a head coach what sort of decisions would i be making at at training and squad selection and and games and season by season that would you know drive towards what you guys are are pointing at and and are starting to prove out here like even things that you know i've spoken to ben about this quite a bit around you know game by game decisions on squad and I think that I think the one the one that I remember is 
uh, at least in rugby, it's potentially better to not make changes after a loss? Yeah, so we did a study in the NRL and found that um, teams that make changes over loss, uh, once they had a loss are less likely to win again. Mm. The teams that didn't make a change are more likely to win. Mm. And it comes back to stability, which, which comes back to... And, and we've, we, we've seen it in other sports and we've, we've worked with some teams um, that um, with, with the idea of creating a sense of stability so they could, so they could get to a level of uh, performance and it was basically a case of don't worry about winning, you know, for the first eight or nine games. That's not your focus. The focus is to build a sense of build stability in the team so you get your markers to a point where you will start winning. Um, we actually worked with the team in, in English rugby and they were at the point of being relegated from the, from the premiership. Um, and so we worked with them on this philosophy and they stayed up and the, the team they were working against, they, they eventually got um, relegated because what they did, this other team, they, lost, they won the first game, you beauty, they changed their selection. And, they, and then they lost. And they went, well, this is not the right team. Let's change the selection. And they lost. And they, they, and they said, well, this is not the right team. And they kept going and going. So their numbers actually went down. And the team we are working with, their numbers went up. So they, the team that went down, their numbers went down. They eventually got relegated, even though at the beginning of the season they were better. But they, they, the, the, what we call action bias, they basically said, this is not right. We've got to make a change. This is not right. We've got to make a change. So stability is a really important part of it, but stability can come in um, different ways. So so in super rugby, traditional super rugby, before the competition was split up, the New Zealand teams could still make more changes than the Australian teams, yet be more successful. They could still have a greater amount of change in selection week by week. So you'd argue that the stability of the New Zealand teams is not necessarily there. But what the New Zealand teams could do, because they had higher TWI, the measure of the cohesion in the squad, when they brought a player in, it had less impact into that environment. Because if you look at the Canterbury Crusaders, most of those players have already played for Canterbury or Tasman in the NPC. And so they've played with half the guys anyway when they come in. So they don't come in raw, so to speak. In Australia, it's in the Australian teams with different lower TWI than the New Zealand teams. So when they, when they bring... When, for them to be successful, they have to actually make less changes um, over the course of the season. So, so and, and that's a trait in for the Australian Super Rugby teams. For them to do really well, everything had to go right for them. Where the New Zealand teams had a lot more fat, they could still have injuries but still be successful um, in that way. So, so stability, um, you know, from a coach perspective, is is really important. But you get you start to see these traits in coaches and people like. Um, say Stuart Lancaster and Robbie Deans and Greg Popovich, you see these little traits in what they do and it's almost the extra stuff. It's the stuff on top of the stuff they're doing, whether that's when Robbie Deans was coach of the Crusaders and they won five Super Rugby titles, they'd be playing soccer at the end of training. And you go, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going to get my rugby team to play soccer because that's the way the Crusaders do it. We look at it as if that's because they've got time left over. They've got their patterns and everything so, so well um, set up the normative behaviours are so high that they've actually got time left over. And, and Greg Popovich is another example for us giving pop quizzes to his players about world geography. It's it's a case of they've actually know what they're doing. That's that's so attuned in the system that there's time left over. What am I going to do? Actually, let's do this. I'm sure at the Knicks, there's always struggling to try and work out how they can win. They won't be going around giving pop quizzes to players. Um, in that way, so 
So it's those little traits you see that coaches can actually take their coaching to another level because every in a high cohesion environment, everything everything you do is allowed to be achieved at capacity. Where in underachieving teams, sorry, teams that are, that, that are not successful, um, the what's happening is that everyone's working absolutely flat out to try and make it successful. And that might be more training. That might be more team meetings. That might be going over the video again. It's all about the what's happening. So you don't get to do that, what the peripheral stuff on top. The people see as a culture thing or people see as that extra 2%. It's not, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily that. It's the, it's a trait of those high functioning environments that make the coach look slightly different in a way yeah uh, well and everyone's sweeping the sheds now but no one has <laughs> actually no one has actually done the, done the work that the all blacks did <laughs> if, if if sweeping the sheds was a marker for success the japanese would win everything yeah so they are, are the politest nicest tidiest sports teams going around so um I love James, by the way, and, and he's been on the show. Uh, but yeah, he's he's created a monster, unfortunately. Yeah, and 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 I and I would agree with that. And I think you know, there's a lot of good stuff in that book, but it's still it is really talking about a very highly successful team, and that's where it's really important to understand the difference between a driver of success and a symptom of success. And and there's a lot of when it comes to the All Blacks, there's a lot of symptoms of success because if you look at the All Blacks, they're just like normal people that do. A lot of them have got into trouble. You know, they talk about better, you know, better men make better All Blacks, but they still, and you know, they still do the wrong things. They still have affairs. They still have fights. They still do all sorts of other dodgy things because ultimately they're just people. But they're people that play for a team that's that's on the end of a great setup a great structure and great set of governance. All right, mate. Uh, where can people find you guys? Where can they get in contact with you? Yeah, so, um, I mean, our website, www.gainline.biz, is, is a good place to start. But our um, Twitter feed, um, at GL Analytics, um, is you can sort of get a vibe of what we're talking about from a you know, day-by-day perspective and obviously at... Um, from the website, you can look at our sort of LinkedIn account, the Facebook, and, and those sort of things. Just generally, um, our social um, social sort of media presence, uh, presence. What we talk about there, we've actually got an e, e newsletter that I do. I do every. I'm supposed to <laughs> try to do every month, but it sort of it gets gets a bit longer after that. Um, and then um, after that, we've also we also run a webinar. We also run a webinar series. So. Um, which we started up actually at the beginning of the year to, to try and sort of circumvent COVID in a way um, so people can get a greater understanding of cohesion analytics where we, we, we do a sport we do a sport one which, which has certain sport-specific topics, um, rugby union, rugby league, football, cricket, AFL and some general sport, general sport information but also do a corporate one as well because ultimately we measure teams. We started in sport. All that, the original nuts and bolts of what we do actually came out of uh, sort of academia, HR, military data that we actually turned into sport. Now we're taking it back the other way and actually working in corporate because ultimately we just measure teams in a way. So whether it's a sporting team or a corporate team, it's it's sort of it's the same inputs, um, same outputs. You measure them against KPIs and you can optimize in those sort of ways. So um, um, yeah, so we're doing that. So 
uh, yeah, so just basically head to the website. You can pick up all those social media streams, uh, subscribe to the newsletter and potentially hop on the, the, the webinar series as well. Yeah, from a, a, a purely where others won't perspective and, and a crossover of talent ideas between business and sport and sport and business it's grossberg's work right out of uh, out of harvard the original yeah so yeah boris grossberg was one he wrote a book called chasing stars so if you've if you've um it's a it's a it's a hard read but it's a worthwhile read so it's, it's looking at the transfer of talent and stockbroking firms mm -hmm. which is really a good metaphor for you know when a player goes from one team to another how does how do they perform so so that's and that's one aspect of looking at the individual so we, we understand that, we measure that, but we also actually measure what happens to the team environment as well when players move around. So there's understanding what happens to the individual, but what actually, what in that, what creates that, what impacts that happen, have on the team as well. So um, that's potentially, that's where Grossberg doesn't go, but Gro Gro Grossberg's work with some of that original um, stuff we've looked at to try and create what, what we felt in sport, because myself and co-founder Ben Darwin, him coming from a elite sport background and me coming from a sort of sports analytics um, performance analyst background is we could see these things and sense these things we just needed a language and understanding how to how to how to frame it up from a from an analytics perspective yeah and like i said at the start mate that's what i really appreciate the the angle because again as a coach um essentially we've got enough people telling us that we're idiots and then uh you don't need more and then just statisticians coming and saying, Hey, uh, uh, expected goals. If you shoot from, you know, right in front of the goal, you're, you're more likely to score. I'm like, Oh fuck. Great. Thanks mate. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I'm glad I gave you that five grand to tell me that like, uh, you know, and so the, your, your perspective on this and, and kind of the inputs idea and, and the fact that it's, it's foundational out of that, you know, talent transition within, within, business especially really appeals to me and, and it will to others as well so thanks for sharing with us today mate like i said at the start long overdue and um yeah uh, appreciate you coming on and talking a bit of coaching a bit of cohesion and um yeah you're doing great work so keep it up keep pushing the barrel forward thanks very much cody pleasure to be on thanks for listening right to the end don't forget to visit codyroyal.com and subscribe to my newsletter for updates on the book launch of The Tough Stuff, which is coming soon, early 2021. And you can get in touch with me directly at that site as well. See you soon.